0: Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me here on the Final Draft podcast. My name is Andrew Popel and today I am joined on the podcast by John Kinsella. Now, the Final Draft podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. Every week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2 C R in Sydney. And here at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names, each of these conversations looks into the issues that drives the author's storytelling. It's a way to discover more from these incredible books, because these are the stories that make us who we are. 2 SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Ganangara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging these are unceded lands. that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, today, as I said, I'm joined by John Kinsella. John is an incredible poet of of range and principle. We've chatted before on the show, and I love exploring his ideas and exploring his, his lyricism. The book that we're going to be discussing is called Cell Night, and it is an historical imagining of an event in the 80s, a protester locked in a cell, what they see, what they hear, and what they stand for. It is uh, it's an incredible. Verse novels themselves are incredible for the way they take you into a story and the way they help you explore the space within the narrative. So join me today as we discover John Kinsella's Cell Night. Uh, my name's Andrew Popel and I am joined today on the on the line we are communicating across the continents but with uh, fabulous Australian poet John Kinsella and John, welcome. I I actually I usually like to give a, a flattering introduction to my guests. I never like to rely on old copy, especially my own and we have spoken in the past because it it often dates or it misses out on something important since the last time we spoke. And so, uh, but across your online footprint as I was I was looking how am I going to introduce John today? There are many descriptions of you I found, you're a poet, a teacher, an academic. One that kept popping up by far the most intriguing and I think perhaps uh, relevant to our conversation today was anarchist vegan pacifist of over 35 years. As we get ready to talk about your, your new book, your verse uh, novel, Cell Night, I wondered how do you like to introduce yourself and how do you, how do you sort of reflect on that, um, that description that I've just pulled out of the online world?
1: Yeah, well, I think, Andrew, um, and it's nice to be speaking again, um, th- that's probably the most apt uh, descriptor for me. Um, you know, those three components, which are all very tightly meshed together, they can't be separated off, um, have been you know, how I've been living for the last 37, 38 years. Um, they matter a great deal to me. First of all, the the vegan self-explanatory, you know, in my very early 20s, I, uh, I came from a, a background where um, sort of hunting and fishing and all that kind of stuff was, you know, part of existence, and I came into a big questioning point of life with that and turned against it and um, took on an animal rights, vegan kind of lifestyle. The lifestyle is not even the word that's already a problem because it wasn't a lifestyle it was actually an essential um, being issue you know that's what I felt I wanted to be and what I was and when I made that decision to be a vegan I was actually living on a dairy so um, in a house down the back um, uh, you know with a group of other people and it was, the, it was the cheapest accommodation in that country area and that's how I came to be living on the dairy and I just, you know, watching the daily function of the dairy, I decided I was already a vegetarian, decided that's it, I would be a vegan. So that's been, you know, probably the um, defining aspect of my life. Um, the pacifism, well, that connects with the veganism. Um, prior to becoming a vegan, um, you know, I was a very, very fiercely left activist, um, but I certainly didn't eschew um aggressions on I was quite an aggressive person in many ways uh certainly my activism and i decided that you know that was inconsistent and that i deeply believed in a kind of uh, world peace and a peace between people and as someone who you know had been involved in a lot of conflict i was also alcoholic then and so on and had addictions and that that whole scene for me was very tied up with uh, aggression so you know, it was an easy um, slip into pacifism and a very committed pacifism. It's been a long-term pacifism. And the anarchism, well, that's an interesting thing. That sort of evolved from my late teens. Um, when I started going along to a, an anarchist sort of group meeting, communal group thing, they asked me to leave because they said I was a nihilist and not an anarchist. Um, I thought a lot about that. Uh, that's um, before I became a vegan pacifist. Um, And yeah, so I started thinking about communal living a lot, which I um, was involved, I was living on a commune down south um, in Western Australia. And I was thinking about decentralizing the way people interact and uh, self, self-governing, self self-driving kind of uh, communalism. So the anarchism came around. So by the time it really became anarchism, around the same time. So those three things are really tightly connected for me, and they became a whole way of looking at the world and a whole way of writing and a whole way of thinking. You know, some people will often joke that it's like just like a mantra, just a saying, but it's not. The component parts are very important and one can't exist without the other because I don't believe in violent change. I don't believe in violence. So my anarchism is not a violent anarchism. It's a peaceful anarchism. Um, The uh, veganism and pacifism are interactive because if you're going to treat animals respectfully, you treat all living things respectfully, including humans, and so on and so on. So they're very tightly meshed and they're tightly meshed with my poetry. So I think it's a pretty good descriptor really to get going with
0: is, it, uh, is that something you've coined, or is that something that others have coined for you and and the internet has picked up? Because I found it on several sites.
1: Oh no no! It's so I've I've written books on it and so on and no I guess I coined it um, you know a vap if you like <laughs> not, not a vape definitely not a vape a vap um, <laughs> can I not not vapid I not vapid I hope but a vap yeah not at all no can- I. Um, Sorry.
0: I was just to say can I can I actually pull on the on the fourth thread which perhaps perhaps it isn't feeling as important as as the the first three but 35 years now you've sort of updated that to 37 38 years um, it intrigued me be, because we haven't really properly introduced cell night yet but the timing would seem to take us to around the time of the narrative and yeah. Before we get to Cell Night proper, I wanted to ask a little bit about that, that intersection of time and philosophy and life and how it influenced your creativity in your art. Can you, were you conscious of it at the time? Are you conscious of it on reflection, how these things changed your creativity?
1: Yeah, well, you've kind of got to the core of it because, um, you know, that timing is exactly right. And that kind of, you know, I was very heavily involved in the mid 80s in uh, anti-nuclear um, activism and very involved in you know trying to prevent logging of old growth forests. And um, obviously, very strongly, and this goes back to the beginning of the 80s, when I first came down from uh, my country high school to Perth to go to university, um, which I eventually wavered from as you know, I became more involved in uh, a different kind of way of existing. Um, it was very, the Bar disputes, um, very involved in land rights, kind of, you know, being part of uh, the non-Indigenous um, support groups around land rights. Um, so that, that was that period. I was very, um, very, very, very driven. I was often homeless at the time. So, you know, I was living, you know, on streets and in any place I could go. And that was very tied up with my addiction issues as well. But um, so that was a very, a period of great, turmoil in terms of how I was living. But in terms of how I was thinking, there was also a clarity, I think, strangely, Um, I really started to see society from a very different perspective. And I didn't like what I could see, I didn't like it at all. And I didn't like the middle class smugness of the West. I didn't like the mining kind of obsession. Um, And, you know, basically the world was there to be used. And I didn't feel that was the case. I strongly believed that we were living on Noongar and where I went to school, land, and I became more and more involved in activism around that. And, you know, some of the only compassion I ever received in that period of my life, which was a really rough period for me, um, were from Indigenous communities who welcomed me and helped me. And, you know, you see this patronising white shit about, you know, uh, of, of the helping hand of the, the white virtue signalling stuff. Well, all the help went my way. I got helped. And, um, was you know, when people wouldn't speak to me, Aboriginal communities would speak to me, they kind of um, were supportive. And I've never forgotten that. And never will it's um the core of everything i am and that's just real you know what what the um the way we talk about this is what it is but that all happened that was part of my life and um from the perspective of 2023 it would be discussed in quite different ways and complex ways and i recognize that and absolutely respect all those different conversations around it but it was who i was and what i was and um Yeah, I started to, and I, you know, started to change and shift and think about things in different ways. But interestingly, Soul Night, though it's a fiction, and so, you know, it's a a fictional, it's a verse novel, it's literally a fiction, but it's based on an incident that I witnessed in the lockup. And I made a promise at the time uh, to family and others around at the time um, that, you know, I would never, ever let that go unsaid that in the future and as i could i would speak out about it and that's what this really is um when i went i did in fact go in front of a judge who said if you said a word you say a word about what you've seen then i'm going to put you in jail for a very long time that was that was literally said to me um but otherwise obviously it's a fictional account um hopefully done respectfully and uh, with sensitivity um to everyone concerned I mean, no one's named or anything, and it's uh, it is a fiction. But yeah, these are that was a time, a pivotal time for me. Yeah.
0: In the tradition of good narrative and uh, and good interviewing, of course, we've we've gone right into the weeds without properly introducing Cell Night. So I might I might just give a frame for our listeners. Cell Night takes us uh, to the eighties. It takes us into a prison where a protester sits. Having been taken in for demonstrating against nuclear warships, in the cells the protester bears witness to abuses. Even as the sounds of the harbour wash in through the windows, and the whole, the truth of the evening becomes a matter of remembrance of a clash between what has occurred and what is to be chronicled in the official record. John, you've um, you've gone in, into the a little bit. My my first question was going to be asking you about sort of the personal history there, but I was. Hoping you could even talk a little bit about what you wanted. You've you've talked about the complicated idea of of fictionalizing this in your own experience, but what essentially you wanted to have told about this story? Because of course there is the protest, which is is visible. It is um, something that is perhaps part more of a record, and then the cell night. Which, of course, is that point of contestation. I guess we might say in scare quotes.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing is that um, there are there are two because the um, timescale of the work is it's set in the mid eighties, but it reflects there. You know, there's a kind of present the the, the, um, narrator or the you the second person and uh, the is also present in in now in the contemporary moment and there is that the aspect of reflection and telling one of the very important things in writing this was um, in no way um to appropriate or um, absorb other, cultural but also personal experiences in the making of it. I was, I, I was fairly rigorous, I hope, with that, and I certainly consulted and discussed with people, you know, to make sure that wasn't the case. So what you're getting is, is inside a narrator who's looking at their own complicity and position and their failure to act beyond what they could. Now, how can someone act when they're constrained behind, you know, bars in the jail? You You can't act. You can yell and shriek and you can say, I'm going to tell the world. But you can't do much else, and then the police will, you know, deal with you accordingly, and and do and did. Um, but in the shift to the um, timescale of the narration, but there's also this obligation of bearing witness across a life. So you've got this narrator looking back to how they lived and who they were, and what's happened. A lot of decades have passed since then. And what's happened? What's changed? We still live in a kind of, uh, you know, colonial empire in many ways uh, in Australia. And there's all the, the many wrongs are still present. Um, the injustices are still present. And um, the also the the absolute Disregard and um, insensitivity to the natural world as well, um, because that's the other side of this book is dealing with with the fact that you know we're dealing with a um, a place that has many agencies um, that exist outside the the colonial centre, and all those agencies have to be um, respected and have to be allowed to function as well. And so the the novel's trying to wrestle with all those spatial temporal issues. Yeah. Um, what has changed? What happened in the mid-'80s? What happened at the time of colonisation? What's happening now? One would expect to see a great big shift. What One doesn't see that. One sees this constant moving back and forth between time and sort of suggesting that, you know, not a lot has changed. Some things have changed, but not as much um, has changed as should have changed, that kind of thing. So there's a very strange relationship with the moment that the events take place in and how they're being looked back at and considered. So in a sense, the, the book's almost like a, um, a series of loops that um, so the narration it's telling a very specific story, but it's retelling it and retelling it again um, as time shifts. Yeah.
0: I wanted to, to sort of go into that. The, the novel begins the opening sort of movement, in fact, chapter movement. I'm not quite sure. Um, begins work. with this, Yeah. <laughs> It begins with this call for remembrance, uh, the the repetition of who will remember, uh, calling on the myriad details, writ large and writ small, that have made up the protests, that have made up the aftermath. And that call for remembrance, it felt to me, was peaked through the novel as we're confronted by, I guess, the process of telling. And I I, I think telling and remembrance are not the same thing. And whose voice gets to become a part of the official record? Bearing witness is is not something we do particularly well in this country, and I wondered what you wanted to say about that.
1: Well, this is there's a number of really interesting points that um, I think that are sort of salient here. First of all, the, um, the because this locates around the very specific time of the uh, anti-nuclear process, you know, the kind of um, bringing together of many different protesters from around the region um with a common purpose and that is to stop the nuclear armed warships um and the nuclear power warships um, using Fremantle as a kind of uh, dropping off point and so there's that and so there are many people especially in the anti-nuclear movement and in the um in the greens movement now who would have memories of those various protests and very strong memories there was a flotilla of boats for example and all sorts of things and there was a, a very strong centrally organized quotation marks around the road central centrally organized sort of group in Fremantle who were very focused on that i wasn't part of any of that um i was more outside than in and in fact um because of my um very far left politics um you know in, in some ways i was seen as Uh, a contamination of the purity of protest because I always brought many other issues. So when I was protesting against the nuclear warships, I was also protesting against colonialism. I was also protesting against the damage of the natural environment, all these other things. I'm not saying others involved in it weren't doing the same, but generally, um, you know, there were many different people from across many different walks of life. So their memories of these events would be very different from mine. They would have a different focus. They have a different sense of camaraderie and so on and so on. So their bearing witness would be very specific, um, no doubt, and very um, personal. Whereas I, in this novel, what I'm trying to do is show that the – One person or two people, a few people can witness something very horrendous and it can be happening within a broader greater witnessing of a wrong which i see nuclear warships and the whole you know it's like this whole orcus thing um Mm -hmm. this whole um worship of uh of of the ultimate power which is the atom the splitting of the atom um you know this stuff that's going on in australia at the moment around uh, the nuclear uh, submarines isn't just a debate about um you um uh, the armaments and so on it, it's actually a debate about uh eschatology about death about total power about you know mastering you know I use that word in in its gendered form the atom to uh to control it's it's a terrible thing this is a very um alpha omega argument that's going on in australia at the moment and the argument sadly seems to already be had that's what's really terrifying but that aside cr- the expression in the uh, mining of uranium is from the cradle to the grave and never has there been a more apt expression but uh in this particular narrative the voices um of uh witness are, are functioning in you know there's the broader public witness there's the the witness of the protest movement against the nuclear warships and there's this personal witnessing which is shared not only by um, the narrator, uh, but it's also shared by obviously the, the police who remain silent, who committed the crimes. And there's also the victim, the victim who has whose voice is taken away from them entirely. It's deleted, erased. And so the very act of how we witness, who's telling the story about, because witness isn't just the personal scene, witness is how it's recounted as well. So... Um, for example, if I um, saw a particular event and I recorded it and then I was gone from the scene, I vanished or passed away or something and someone took that recording, then they're using that witness as a kind of vicarious witnessing themselves and so on. All those layers of how witnesses um, conveyed to a broader audience are explored in the novel in, in, I hope, very subtle ways and by suggestion and never telling. It's, uh, I, I, I don't think, the, though the book has some... Pretty disturbing details in. It's not a book that tells. It's a book that's almost caught in its own iterations in the sound of the story going on and on and on. So it's it's a complex issue. This one probably the core issue of the book. So I'm glad you brought it up.
0: And there's a few. Th- <laughs> there's more than a few threads that I want to pull on here. And sometimes it, it, it is hard to know exactly where to go. So I'm gonna I'm gonna trust my notes here and pull on that thread of form and and the form of bearing witness. Because, of course, this is uh, a novel, uh, a poetry, a a poetry novel, a novel of poetry. Um, And that intrigued me. I love your poetry. I've I've, I've always enjoyed reading your poetry. But how that works writ large, and I just wanted to reflect um, on Sarah Holland-Batt, who was the 2023 Stellar Prize winner uh, for her cole- recent collection of poetry. In um, in her collection of essays, Fishing for Lightning, she describes poetry as, as full of freedom and possibility, but a form that is difficult for outsiders. In my reading of Cell Night, I, I found myself with glimpses that were connecting events with disparate thoughts, such that I found... The impressions were at times confusing, but ultimately they built. They built and built for me. In the same introduction to that collection, Bat also describes a relationship of trust, even conspiracy, between a poet and their audience in the reading of a poem. So, of course, I've just given you a, a, a sense of my reading of your work, but, of course, that then becomes a, a, a fact of a relationship, as, as Sarah Holland Bat describes it. This is all preamble, though, to me asking you about your choice of form. Um, it's described uh, in the sort of the on the jacket as as spindle sonnets. Um, it works very effectively to uh, I found to throw up images. Why Why did you choose this form of all the the forms of poetry you could use, and why poetry to tell this narrative?
1: Well you know when i started it i was using um but when i originally got the idea i was writing it as um uh, a prose kind of uh, fiction wow. and i abandoned that this is a long time ago and then i um decided i'd use poem a uh, poetry form um And I started using a kind of four line, long line stanza. And then I found what it was doing was it was converting into a a telling, um, a a fiction that was telling. And I didn't want that. It's it's not, in some ways, I think to tell would be to lose the incredible um, possibility, generative possibilities of getting something out of this story and bringing change, which is what I always want, positive change. in, so then I, I messed around for a period of time. I, I went to Sonnets, um, and I didn't like them as well for the for the I love Sonnets, but for this particular purpose because I found them too constraining. Um, and I thought, really what I want is to is to have that conversation with the reader. Um, and I want to kind of um well, I, I would call an open intimacy. So an intimacy that's not invasive in any way. Yeah. Um, and so by stripping the sonnet right back to, you know, one to four words uh, line, um, very free form and open, it would allow the reader to feel the, the sense of a constraint that necessarily exists with the material. We're talking about, you know, being locked up and so on and, and so on. You, you'd feel that. Um, but at the same time, you have this free-flowing uh, go-with-the-story, almost like the running of sand or the uh, the movement of waves or whatever it is, those kind of natural movements, <clears throat> excuse me. So it was a choice um, that came about. Out of necessity of, mm-hmm. of experimenting with different ways of approaching the story. So this and Tracy, my partner, poet Tracy Ryan, she um coined the phrase spindle sonnets because when she saw them, she said they look like spindles. And really the weaving that goes through the book, it's all about weaving different, you know, uh threads together. It's it's stuck. So I I call them spindle sonnets. Um and yeah, it's that that control mixed with the um with freedom that's why i use the form and, and you know the, the funny thing is you know you go through it and there's no doubt you get to periods in the narrative where you say now this is this is a strange shift there's something different happening here and what i'm hoping in those those moments is that then you reconsider everything that's come before because really what you're getting is the story same story told in a variety of different ways um and there are little shifts all implanted in the narrative Little like portals um, where you can then say, "Oh, what I've read before, maybe I could reread in this context." So hopefully, it keeps you, as I said, loops. It can keep you going, reading back and back and back, and that's the idea of it. And poetry is about refrain, and repetition, and that, and those kind of echoes. And that's what I really want in this. And I found that that was the most effective way of getting that um, across, rather than writing in straightforward. Um, prose fiction, which you can do that in, of course you can, Mm. but um, I found this a really effective way so it brought together the poet and the fiction writer um, because I'm a short fiction writer and uh, yeah, I I brought those two methodologies together to make this.
0: You you talked there about as you experimented with form, letting go of this idea of telling, which of course I guess guess opens up um, that relationship that I was talking about before with your reader, with your audience. Is that hard does that involve a leap or again that sense of trust
1: yeah well this is why this could only ever be written as a fiction Mm. because i i couldn't write this i mean i do write memoirs um but i couldn't write this as memoir um in in a sense it would be too invasive Mm. to write as a memoir not only invasive of um uh, you know others but invasive of myself um and so I had to fictionalise, take an event, and then create a fiction. You know, the whole fiction of the person going back and all these kinds of things and the way they reinterpret their, for example, um, living rough, living, you know, their homelessness and uh, or, and so on is also brought into it as well. And, yeah, so, so really in some senses this could only be done um, almost as an act of survival. Um, because in telling your story, you still have to survive the telling of it. Even if you're telling something you've witnessed um, and you want to bring it to a broader attention in a variety of ways, you've still got to survive it. Uh, That's one of the great problems with um, the relationship of trust between the reader and the writer is very often the writer can forget um the reader forgets lot, I mean the the writer forgets lots of things, but the reader, sorry, can forget that um no the writer has really laid themselves on the line. And most often they're going to get a rough time at some point. That goes for the territory, but they're also they want that trust to be maintained with the reader as well. They want the reader to trust. So the reader wants to be able to trust the writer. I mean, that's very important for even if it's an unreliable narrative, um, the the reader has something they're looking for. Well, the writer certainly has something they're looking for as well. And so this this book is a real negotiation. Um, and it's you know, it's confronting. I mean, the thing is, it's criticizing an ongoing colonialism to its very core. I believe it's emphatically wrong. I believe, you know, you know, on mass return of land to Indigenous people, I believe that, you know, that knowledge should be protected, that's Indigenous knowledge and shared by Indigenous people, not by non-Indigenous people who think they have the right of acts, all these kinds of things. I, I mean, I believe strongly, and I've articulated that in various places over the years. But in this, um, if the reader goes to it and they don't feel that way, I still hope that they can engage with enough trust with the narrative to come out and at least challenge the way they see the world. Mm. I may not change them, and maybe I shouldn't think I can, but I can think, well, they can say, well, that's another way of looking at things. Um, And because it's fiction, they can say, well, you know, they can either push it aside or they can take that fiction on board as we do with stories we are particularly affected by. Um, as part of who one is. The interesting little addendum to that is that the non telling. How do you write a story that's not telling? All stories are. But what I mean by that is that um, enough doubt comes into the narrator, a lot of self doubt, a lot of self um, awareness of self, of limitation, and um, sort of failures to succeed in things that the narrator hoped to do. I hope that self doubt allows um, uh, an access that just straightforward saying, "Well, I'm right, you're wrong, bugger off," uh, would you know just prevent would be quite alienating to any reader, uh, even if they're on the side. Yeah,
0: I think this next thread, uh, John, uh, maybe comes as much from the atmosphere of of my own reading and my own thoughts as I was encountering Cell Knight, and we we talked a little bit about this off air. Um, is, I, I would really like to come to, I guess, the sense of uh, the environment and the space. But uh, interestingly, I, I want to move out of the cell, the the cell night, um, and ask about the sea and the vastness of the ocean. I gathered this sense throughout cell night that you, or perhaps as a The the voice that I was listening to had a feeling that we're perhaps naive as a species in our interactions with and on the oceans and, and the impressions of ports as perhaps being liminal spaces where we negotiate with how we might embark out onto this vast expanse that's ultimately so foreign as to be almost unknowable. Um, this idea that these these ships of, the, the you know, the protest centres around these ships containing such imp- incredible destructive force, but in the vastness of the ocean, they also kind of are reduced to ridiculousness of bobbing corks. Um, and I just, I, I was really fascinated by all of these impressions that I got and how they mix with my own thought of, ourselves as both being uh apart, but by our by, I guess by virtue of our humanity and, and the way we position ourselves in this in this Anthropocene as as being uh separate to the natural world
1: yeah well I, I think that our separating off is a real problem of course. Mm. Um but, you know I'm an environmentalist I suppose you could add to the vegan anarchist Then you'd end up with vape, wouldn't you? Vegan, anarchist, pacifist, environmentalist. That's a bit of a worry. But um, anyway. uh,
0: Pair? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry? You could be pair? Yeah, I could be. That's better.
1: Yeah. Okay. A pair is good. A pair is good. That is just right. Seriously, environmentalism is, you know, that's been an active part of my life since my late teenage years and um, deeply committed, you know. uh, And, I can't see, I've never been, I, I, I get visceral pain when I see damage done to the living world. I get visceral pain when I see damage done to the non-living world, but certainly even more so with the living world in all its myriad forms. The ocean is, well, as I say, amniotic, and it's, uh, you know, it is it is the basically birthplace of, um, of life. And, yeah, I look at the ocean as this, as this, not only living thing, but this thing that brings life. Um, without it, we would be in serious trouble. And it's yeah, I, I venerate the ocean, all the oceans. I, I venerate it. I you know it's really, in some ways, an ode. This book's also an ode to the ocean. Now, I'm a, I'm very much an inland person in the sense that you know I, I live in you know, rural Western Australia in the wheat belt, um, and you know I've written a lot about inland. I even have a poem called The Inland, but I've also spent a lot of time around oceans. When I went to school in Geraldton, I was living right next to the ocean. Um, And, you know, when we lived for years, time in Ireland so on, lived right next to the ocean and so on. So the ocean's actually been quite a significant part of my life as well. And I'm I'm fascinated by it. And as I said, I'm in awe of it and respect it. So the ocean becomes a really interesting, you know, you talk about liminal zone of ports, the ocean itself is just so liminal it you know you you immerse yourself in it and um yet and you you become part of it and you emerge from the you know intact it's such a strange kind of relationship one has with water generally and the ocean in particular so yeah um it's it's the it's the conceit that runs through the book it's the um and it's the living organism that it's so insulting to treat the ocean the way we do. It's just so insulting. It's insulting to all existence. And so, yeah, that's the that's the pulse that runs through the book. And the ocean is never wrong. <laughs> the ocean's never wrong in the book. Um, lots of other things are wrong, but the ocean's never wrong. Um, the birds are never wrong in the book. And, uh, you know... People would say that's a kind of pathetic fallacy and, you know, this is extending. But seriously, why should they? Why should they be wrong? The humans are doing plenty of nasty stuff. Mm. Um And so there is a veneration of animal life, but also um, and um life in general. And I see the ocean as a living, or one big living organism. So, yeah, there is that. And there's no question. I, I do... I do. I'm a I'm a pantheist. You know, I, I do worship nature. I do see God in all living things, um, for whatever you want to call God, but in a in a kind of um, general sense of the word, uh, I see all life is sacred. So, um, and when I say sacred, I don't mean that sort of you know way that um, right wing American discourse uses the word. I mean the complete opposite. I mean that uh, we are also part of it, and we respect ourselves by respecting the natural world so um i don't use it as a control mechanism i use it as a kind of um universal signifier of being um which is a completely different from uh, that that very constrained um american uh right version of um you know what what, what the sacred is um, i see it as a very different thing i see there's something entirely holistic and interactive and non-hierarchical
0: but while while we have referenced that I guess that kind of essentialist closed conversation way of of thinking um you referenced before also uh AUKUS and and I I thought I'll I'll leave this to the end because it was very much on my mind as I read Cell Night that we were having this conversation or perhaps more appropriately we we were not having this conversation as a nation. We were being told as a nation about yeah, the Orksteel. We yeah, we were. We no were no conversation
1: at all. Mm. Andrew, no conversation. Where's the conversation? Yeah, you know, amazing.
0: It's and again, it's it's sort of that essentialist closed closed loop mm-hmm. where we are we are presented with it, and not even in a take it or leave it, um, but. As I thought about cell night and I thought about this engagement with this acquisition of nuclear submarines that, you know, realistically may never be delivered. But it put me in the mindset of, well, the world the world has never lapsed into peace accidentally over the last 40 years. But it definitely feels to me at the moment like there's a refreshed stirring of nationalist rhetoric that comes alongside um the the this this telling conversation, um, and it also it leans towards kind of a chest beating and and military, you know this calls for military preparedness. I'm not I'm not here to ask you to solve the world's problems uh, around this, but it I guess it comes back to what we were saying before about bearing witness, where we're in a moment where we are being again told we are asked to look at the world around us, but only understand it through a particular lens. And I'm wondering how how you might reflect on this uh, in the light of the narrative of cell night and, and in that sort of process of reflection that you've gone through in create, crafting this narrative.
1: Well, first of all, I'll solve the world's issues in one word, disarm. Mm. Yeah, that's the first one. Um, but seriously, and I am serious, disarm, <laughs> yep. disarm, um, is that uh, the um fiction like this and especially using poetic form is is always going to uh sit on the edge of things it, it can never be um Central to any debate that's the nature of maybe the nature of creativity in general, is it's always it's nice for people to look at when they have the spare moment. They're going to push it aside in the serious moments. Whereas I see those things that we do as artists, I see them as the serious in right in the serious moments. They're part of it. So already I'm going to have a slightly different perception. But this um, uh, horrendous rising nationalism and um, you know war talk and. Uh, so-called capability discussion is one and i've spent my life watching and recording and writing about these this is one of the most worrying periods of um you know my life in australia in terms you know this is i remember as a child during the Viet, in a small child during the vietnam war I, I remember hearing this stuff i remember knowing people you know who are much older than me of course going off to um to being forced to go and fight and so on and I remember all those discussions around that you don't forget those things especially as a 6 year old or a 5 year old or a, you know and so on you remember these things and that's the feeling I've got now <coughs> that we're being corralled into these kinds of things without discussion without and the the kind of triumphalism that goes around uh, one side of the d- debate, the people who already have their mind set on these things, but also that just the 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 quiet, um, almost passive reception of it. You know, where are the um, anti-nuclear submarine protests? Um, and and, the, and the, what attaches to that too? The whole kind of uh, rhetoric of you know we are on the verge of conflict and we have to prepare, and also where are the protests against this? There are none. You don't see the mass moratorium marches and that kind of thing. You don't see that. It worries me, and so it's left to things like you know to artists to to try and challenge through symbolism. And and sometimes when those challenges are made, they're they're immediately stamped upon, and uh, or they're considered suspect, or they're considered you know a betrayal or whatever. When in fact, very often, affirming and caring. And wanting what's best for all the people um, in, in you know, the so-called nation, which you know, the the big capital N nation I don't recognize. I recognize First Nations, which are a very different kind of nation. I don't recognize the big nation. I think it's a destructive, centralized entity of control. But that issue aside, even, um, I think that uh we as participants in a place are losing contact with you know the irony of social media and all this is that supposedly all have voices but all it's meant is none of us have real voices Um, you get sways and shifts in governance Uh, because of social outcries, but there are only sways and shifts to assuage and to suppress those voices that challenge them. The actual mechanisms are still there. The interesting thing about the whole voice um, argument is that uh, maybe in some ways that mechanism can be challenged. Now, we're constitutionally assured and reassured and assured again that, you know, there's no real um, kind of threat to governance of Australia, and I'm sure that's absolutely the case. But I'm talking even metaphorically speaking, the importance of, um, and this is, comes from a person who doesn't participate in the voting system of Australia in any way whatsoever uh, or anywhere, um, you know, I am an anarchist. I really mean what I'm saying is that um, I do deeply hope that uh, there's a kind of empowerment that comes through the voice and that, you uh, these kind of centralized institutions are challenged if nothing else in terms of their spirituality and their their being by the voice which is such an essential thing and you know I uh so I think that that that's there's a creativity in in that in that desire to actually shift conversations away from these kind of uh colonial white structures into a um something that involves, the people whose country it actually is, um, who, you know, whose roots go back so far and who have an understanding, a totemic relationship and understanding of land in ways that just can't be absorbed um, unless there's that connection there. So yeah, getting looping back in the in in that loop is that I think ultimately we have an obligation, again as readers and writers, to actually push ourselves into this conversation, to bring people out. Uh, to participate in a kind of protest against being steamrolled into an aggression that doesn't have to exist. It doesn't have to exist. There's enough aggression in Australia already. We don't need to make more.
0: I just want to – that was actually the final question that I'd written, but I want to sort of bring us around because I like the – the cut through of this idea of bearing witness, this idea of having voice and the voices you were just talking about there, uh, the real at the top of our conversation, you you talked about sort of the image of of the central character of Cell Knight and their voice and their ability to speak and it being constrained literally by a cell. They can, you know, they can yell and they can shriek, but they are literally constrained in what they can do. And I wondered how that might you know sort of shift us forward in time in the conversation we're having right now look to someone or to everyone feeling that they have a voice you know social media has liberated us all to have a voice but in the in the absolute dilution of that are we perhaps even even more silenced you know it's so easy to discount it is so easy to to box someone up as you're over there, and therefore you don't count, and perhaps there is there is something to that in the fear that comes uh, at the idea of the voice, um, the voice to Parliament, the voice that was called for through um, the statement to the heart, um, that it it has such clarity of purpose that it might actually have cut through. I mean, if you can if you can if you can't silence everyone, if you can dilute their voices so that they almost don't matter, a single strong voice perhaps does present a threat to some people
1: yeah there's an interesting thing and i you know i totally agree with the um the dilution the idea that you know many voices suddenly become diluted and less effective but i also emphatically believe in the many voices always Mm. in the same way as i believe in diversity and tolerance and these essential sort of aspects of what i consider just living that is that we all have um the right to speak. And what the voice symbolizes, of course, is the right to speak for many who actually have uh, overtly had their voices oppressed and uh, and don't have access to um, voicing in a certain kind of way, certain kinds of things. And I think that's the essential point here, isn't that, um, yes, we can all get on social media if we wish and say things, but it, is ineffective very often, and what we're talking about with um in, indigenous voicing is surely I would I would assume and guess the 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 right to voice in a certain way, the right to voice in a certain context, and the right to vo- voice certain things. Um, and it's it's a much more subtle thing than people ever take into consideration. They they see it as almost um, monotheistic, as this kind of um, challenge to their concept of um of the the big things like the prime minister or um the uh the head of state or god almighty even the king that kind of thing you know the, the most ludicrous thing in the world you know of <laughs> the king of australia is so absurd it's beyond i can't even begin on that one um you know it, it's so absurd but um the the idea that there's many faceted voice there's not one person it's many mm. different um groups of peoples um indigenous peoples interacting and sharing and having a complex uh, polyphonous voice, I think really uh, frightens people because they actually can't identify it as one. Um, they they can talk about it as one, but it's not. The interesting thing about the vilification of Lydia Thorpe um, is that uh, regardless of specific things she said or specific incidents and so on, everyone can pull those out as much as they wish. Um uh, which I find absolutely beside the point and ludicrous, is that her point she makes about um not being heard, the point she's saying about arguments being twisted. um now you know she's someone who obviously is not in favour of the voice as it exists. You know, she, that but she's still part of a voicing um and so we've got to think of two things here one is the voice to parliament and one is the voicing of um the many voices of indigenous kind of uh um peoples and place and so on how they relate it's it's such a complex thing and i think that if we just make it in when we talk about it as just the voice of parliament we're missing out on the fact that it also symbolizes many different voices Um, working together, even if they're very different, such as Lydia Thorpe's Mm. uh, has a very different approach to this. Um, And that's tied up with treaty and all the rest of those um, matters around that. But there's a kind of disrespect um, to many Indigenous speakers and commentators um, in just trying to reduce their role to just a role. Mm. Um, I find that very bothering. And I think that getting back to... um, trying to write cell night, is when a voice is taken away so brutally. You know, we live in a country where deaths in custody. You know, I think in the last um, previous year of the 102 deaths in custody, I think 16 were Indigenous. This, the figures may be slightly out, but roughly. Um, of the um, 102, all but 16 were quotation marks, natural causes, whatever that might mean that the other the 16 that were indigenous were um, suicide mm. and um, or a large number of them were and I may be getting the numbers wrong but the point I'm making is that uh, and and you know what cause and what lies behind that is a horrendous truth of colonialism, a horrendous truth and um, this is the reality we're living with and Selma is written in the appalling uh, fallout of that reality is that um, many voices are just being are being, are being killed, are dying. And it's a pretty grim reality. I mean, people don't want to think about these things when they read the fiction. They just don't. They, they want other ways of getting through things. But that, though it's not those figures and those sort of things aren't mentioned directly in there, that is the um, that is the subtext, mm. and it's a very overwhelming subtext. It's one we should all be overwhelmed by, um, and we should be marching in the streets to stop. But um, yeah, anyway, I say all these things with respect because I obviously, with all matters um, pertaining to uh, Indigenous peoples and rights, it's not for me to speak. Mm. I don't have that right and never assume it but I say there's uh, a participant in um what Australia is with quotation marks around Australia and the deep feeling of respect and obligation to indigenous peoples and to all difference in Australia um because you know different difference is a good thing
0: mm. I think just a final thought if I if I could share John um because I, I chided myself as as soon as as soon as I finished. Uh, that last question that all this talk of of voice and um, really my my ability to ignore that reciprocal obligation of hearing and of course at the heart of cell night is someone has been taken off the street someone has been locked up to again in scare quotes to save people from having to hear what they have to say and and really uh, that is an enormous part of it and I think we we touched on this with the idea that uh, between an artist and their audience there is a relationship that iterations utterances need to be heard and um, I don't I don't have anything more to say on that other than when we do talk about speaking it's also very important to remember the role of, of listening um, and I think I think Soul Night is a really uh, a really good opportunity to practice listening because in my reading of it, I, and you, you talked about the cyclical nature. We come back through and we, we, invite re-readings. We don't just hear, we, we try to understand.
1: Yeah, the, um, you know, I think the perfect way, um, probably very few people will ever do this, but the perfect way to experience cell night is to read it aloud or heard it read aloud to hear it read aloud, um, to have heard it read aloud. Um, because it is uh, very much about voices and voicings, though there's one narrator, um, you get the sense. I hope in that narration, in that second person narration, that there are other voices moving through. Um, and because the narrator has a very particular kind of politics of not trying to, you know, intrude or own people or direct or conduct people, they all they can become is like a know something catching the voices as they pass through them letting them go so they're almost fleeting not fleeting because they can't be held on to but because the narrator is choosing not to hold on to them and that's a an interesting paradox because there's a the whole process of memory and witness and what you feel your obligation um as someone in that position to do and uh you're sort of wrestling with also the feeling that you should let things go because they're not your voice and so on and and so on and so on so there's a you know it's a paradoxical nature to what you're hearing and I do think the best way to hear those those whispers and those other voices in there is to read it aloud because they're in there they're in there they're in there often in a word in the uh the inflection of a word or the way it has a um, an assonance or it has um, an on the mass appear, or, uh, you know, or the alliteration you get here and there, they're just little sort of aids to memory, really. Mm. And, yeah, you hear it in a different way. So when I wrote it, I actually, every single section, when I'd finished it, and I, it took you know some time to revise and revise, but when I got it exactly as I wanted, each chapter or section, um, is I read aloud, and uh, often a couple of times just to hear it made a huge difference i went through and did a lot of alterations that way so i wanted to make sure as it worked as a poem as well as a story um as well as a fiction and yeah so i think maybe you get that through listening
0: john (laughs) thank you so much i'm just going to outro us um well actually no sorry i i've given you all the questions that i have but of course i i don't pretend to have covered all of cell are there any other any other thoughts that you had before we we do outro and say goodbye
1: Oh, just the, the only thing is that you know I I well I truly hope with this book um, is that people go to it um, with the with the spirit it was in you know that I wrote it with if you like or I intend and that is that uh, that they're open to possibilities and that um, it, you know it is quite an open form it's intended to be open there are it's porous there are places to go in and places to go out and that um, you know you don't have to stay you don't get stuck in there necessarily though it has a lot of those kind of images and so on, necessarily, I think, but that people can pass in and out of it and uh, don't feel as if they're locked into anything. I have very strong views, but that doesn't mean the the narrator is is trying to work things out. Mm. So I hope that allows the reader somewhere to go with them and trying to work things out so as i said i just i I don't want it to be that kind of uh that telling i don't Mm. want it to be that because i don't think it serves any purpose
0: thank you and john i'm going to give us an outro i am speaking with john kinsella we are discussing his new book Cell night john thank you for taking the time across the airwaves you're joining me from germany and i'm sitting here in my home in the blue mountains it has been absolutely wonderful to have this chat
1: I've really enjoyed it, Andrew, and I wish you the best.
0: That is it for my conversation with John Kinsella. Thank you again, John. Like, it is is always so incredible to explore work that perhaps challenges what you read every day, what you experience every day, and Cell Night is definitely that. So, John's new book is called Cell Night, and uh, I highly recommend checking it out. Poetry is really having a moment in Australia, Um, maybe across the world, we could even say. And if you I haven't read poetry recently. I think you should go and check out contemporary poets, poets like John, to um, to surprise yourself with the way they're telling stories. That's it for Final Draft. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find us on the socials. You can find us on the emails. Like, uh, email me. Forget social media. Social media is just, you know, it's dying. Um, we go, we're going back to email. FinalDraft at 2 ocr.com or just subscribe in your podcast app. It means you'll have a new interview, a new book club, new Australian literature every week. I'm Andrew bopal I'm going to be back with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Stay tuned till next week. Till next time I speak to you. Happy reading. Bye for now.